I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. And we are two Shakespeare nerds who decided to make a podcast about our love for Shakespeare. In this podcast, we will tackle as many dimensions to Shakespeare's plays as we can by looking at the text, examining the historical context in which it was written, and how the text is viewed through modern lenses of feminism, racism, classism, colonialism, nationalism, ableism, all of the isms. We will discuss how his plays shaped both the past and present, and, as actors, how his plays can be responsibly performed today, all while trying our best to approach his works without giving in to bardolatry. So, Shakespeare anyone? Hi listeners, it's Courtney here. If you are listening to this episode after 2023, you might be wondering, who is this Corey Lee Smith host? When we started this podcast, I went by that stage name, Corey. I've chosen to leave my stage name and, as you know, I now go by Courtney. But before you enjoy past Elise and past Courtney's episodes in our back catalog, I wanted to clarify the name switch. Now that I've set that straight, I invite you to sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Hello listeners, this is Courtney. Elise and I are so thrilled to continue bringing episodes of Shakespeare Anyone to listeners like you for free. We do this out of our love for Shakespeare, theater making, scholarship, and decentering dead white men. We put a lot of hard work into research, recording, editing, and generally producing a podcast. With that said, I'm here to remind you all that we have a Patreon page if you want to support our current work and our future goals that we believe Patreon will help us achieve. We've created a variety of support levels and continue to create exclusive bonus content for our patrons on a monthly basis. Our bonus content so far includes Shakespeare Stuff We Loved This Month posts, where we share the Shakespeare-related products we are obsessing over. Not only that, but we already launched bonus episodes. One is an extension on our conversation with Dr. Simone Chess about John Lilly's Galatea and Early Modern Trans Studies. And the second is a conversation with special guest Stephanie from Protest Too Much Podcast, in which we review Joel Cohen's Macbeth starring Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand. Elise and I also discuss Shakespeare-adjacent content, like movies, TV shows, books, to name a few, and share those conversations exclusively to Patreon. These are incredible conversations you can unlock as a patron. We also have plans for additional bonus episodes, including more special guests, more film reviews, and even an Ask Us Anything. Distinguished patrons even receive exclusive voting power and snail mail. If you would like to join us and support the production of this podcast, or just check out the Shakespeare-themed names we've given the support levels, head to patreon.com slash shakespeareanyone. The link will also be in our episode descriptions. And if you like what you hear, Elise and I would greatly appreciate it if you could rate, review, and follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Your review might even make it on an episode. When you're done, be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter, and then tell a friend. Word of mouth is our best form of advertisement. Thank you for listening and all of the support you give us and the podcast. Now, onto the episode. This week, we are sitting down for a conversation with Carly Stevens, 
about her recently released novel, Laertes, which finally allows Laertes to tell his side of the story. Carly lives in Colorado Springs, where she has taught high school English and Hamlet for over 10 years. For Carly, writing Laertes is the fulfillment of a long-time dream. She also writes immersive young adult fantasy novels set in the dark but beautiful world of the Tanyuan Academy. Enjoy this incredible conversation with Carly Stevens. Hi, Carly. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been such a delight to get to know you and your work a little bit and share your work with our listeners. I know Corey and I are both really excited. Mm -hmm. So first things first, we like to ask our guests, what was your first experience with Shakespeare? Yeah, so I have been studying or teaching Shakespeare since I was 12. There was a kind of homeschool co-op class that was homeschooled growing up. So when I was 12, I read Much Ado About Nothing. I remember that one, Twelfth Night. I'm sure there were some tragedies in there too, but I really liked the comedies because we got to watch some of the movie. And from there, I was just completely hooked. If there was an elective I could take in high school or college, I was there. And now I am a teacher. And so I teach more than just Shakespeare, but I've done Shakespeare electives myself. And so it really has become this lifelong thing with me that I I love these plays. And similarly, what made you want to pursue literature in your career? I've always been a story person. I mean, even before I was 12 and read my first Shakespeare play, I just always loved reading. I loved stories. And that's the way I like to see the world. And that grew into literature and writing and became a bit more formal once I realized what the formal path or a formal path for that was. But I was I was writing as a little kid. I was always reading stories on the side. And even when I took breaks from reading, because I think a lot of people do that, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> there, mm-hmm. I, I still would get so much from the stories and movies. And so it was just such a natural fit for me. It didn't make sense for me to be doing something other than a literature-based line of work. That leads then to your book, Laertes. What is your experience with Hamlet prior to writing Laertes? I have been teaching it for over 10 years at the high school level, and I enjoyed the play before that. In college, I remember I was in the freshman English class that didn't get to read Hamlet, but it was a play I'd always been interested in. And so I watched the Kenneth Branagh uncut, you know, four-hour movie with my friends who did have that assigned to them. And I was just, it was over. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I've learned more about Hamlet every time I've taught it. It's incredible how much there is. Even in the last episode I listened to of yours, um, the guest that was on talked about this play on words that I hadn't really thought about before with Hamlet. And I thought, oh, of course, of course. And that's one of the beautiful things about the play is that you can always peel back more layers. And it's not just that you're grasping at straws. There are enough connections. There are legitimate layers that you can keep going through. And so I've just loved it for years and years. And I've always thought that Laertes didn't get quite the fair shake in terms of performances or even criticism. I would hardly see anything at all about Laertes or if it was there, it was kind of short and unflattering. And and I always thought there was more to him. So that's where the book came from. That's a good point because I didn't realize until reading your book 
how little I had thought about Laertes. It dawned on me that he has very little life in this play and there's so much possibility there. So what drew you to the character of Laertes? What about him inspired you to expand on his story and tell this story? It was the end. (laughs) The final duel between Hamlet and Laertes and just how, to me, it was clear that Laertes is the man that Hamlet could have been if he were better. You know, he runs out there and, I mean, revenge, you know, you can argue the merits of like how good revenge is, but he takes action immediately. He actually accomplishes his goal. But more than that, it was the dying forgiveness that Mm. just always stuck with Mm. me. And it's a it's a trope that I can't get enough of. Mm -hmm. It just is so impactful for me, the idea that nobody is like beyond that forgiveness and that that's his final act. It just seems so noble to me and worth exploring. So that Mm -hmm. was the beginning of my kind of obsession with digging into who he could be outside of the small bits that he's in the play. Mm -hmm. More about your story. You set this in 1920s Denmark and France. Can you talk a little Mm -hmm. bit more about the decision and uh, why you chose that time period over others? Yes. I felt like I had a few options. Initially, I was looking into setting it in the 1600s, much closer to when Shakespeare actually wrote the play. I didn't know a lot about the time period, so I was kind of digging into it, but it didn't feel quite right. And then when I landed on the idea of giving it a dark academia spin, everything clicked into place for me. And so I needed something that was a little bit more contemporary, but not quite. And I liked the 20s for a couple of reasons. I thought that historically coming between two massive wars would kind of work as a nice backdrop, even though I don't get super specific about the time period. Shakespeare doesn't get super specific about his time period. So I I wanted the flavor of the 20s and the flavor of that impending doom, but also the freedom of jazz and things changing really rapidly. Uh, and I just like the aesthetic of it. So it was it was a, a variety of things that made me choose the 20s. But I think mm-hmm. it's a pretty good fit. I agree. Before we started recording, we were chatting and the setting is, like Elise said, so lovely to be in. I found myself longing for this life that Laertes had in Paris with his friends and with his school. And so I think that you're right. I think it helps aid us in finding the depth of Laertes, placing him in this Paris, this like very academic and artistic and lovely location. So I agree. And it's such a beautiful contrast to the cold Elsinore castle that we know from Hamlet. Like Corey was saying, this rich tapestry of Paris, France. Yeah, it was really interesting looking into the castle in Denmark more because I had never done that in all my years of teaching the play. And looking at all the pictures and reaching out to the people there, it is very stark. I mean, there are beautiful elements to it. The way that I describe it is almost exactly as it is. I took a creative liberty here or there, like there's no balcony off the ballroom, but I wanted there to be a balcony. I think that's the only one I intentionally just, just going to change it. Everything else is just as it's described. So yeah, that was interesting to me. Yeah. And that actually lends us to the next thought that I have is you've decided that Laertes's story needs to be expanded upon. And I'm sure it was a long process making it come to life. So could you walk us through the writing process and the adaption process? What was it like adapting this play, especially this quintessential play into a novel? It was a blast. Um, The Mm -hmm. first thing I did was 
I got another copy of Hamlet as though I need another copy. But if this is my Laertes notes copy, so obviously you need a separate one. Mm-hmm. So I got my copy and I just started annotating and making a ton of notes. This was before I nailed down the 1920s. This was just the very first thing that I did. And so I would try to read into everything that not only he said or that was said about him, but that could lend an understanding to the world that he lived in and the relationships and things that I hadn't really noticed or dug into before, allusions and things. So I just made tons and tons and tons of notes and a separate document full of notes. And I started to kind of put them into a chronological order and see where connections could be made. And then to get the spine of the story, I knew it was a character-driven story. And so what is going to get Laertes from the beginning to the end? I knew I wanted to stick pretty close to the play when, when the play intersected with the novel. And so how is the end of Hamlet going to be a payoff for the journey that he goes on through this book internally? Like what about him needs to change? And and so I connected some of those dots and hopefully, you know, when you get to the end and it's him versus Hamlet, it has this emotional weight. And when he forgives him and forgives himself, it demonstrates the change that he's undergone. And so all of that, I just kind of strung like, you know, string lights and then sort of fleshed it out from there. I think it helps that I've read the play so many times and I've thought about this for so many years. I've mentioned Mm -hmm. it like 10 years of classes. Oh yeah, one day I'm going to write this book. And so, you know, all the references to the lines, I'm sure you caught all those little, you know, nods to the lines. Mm -hmm. I didn't have to look up any of those. I just have read it so many times, but I don't know. It felt like this really magical combination of these things that I had built up to both professionally and personally and so it was not that hard of a book to write in some ways once it actually got going. Yeah and I do notice there's an ease to references to quotes direct quotes as well as moments that Laertes is not a part of but are important for understanding the story. Yeah, like I really liked Gertrude just offhandedly mentioning the actors coming to the castle and performing a play and it's like If you read Hamlet, you know what that is. But if you didn't read Hamlet, you don't need to know what that is, you know. Yeah, it's these delicious little Easter eggs for people who are very familiar with Hamlet to pick up on. Mm -hmm. At the same time, it's lovely that you've created a story that can exist alongside and also without reading William Shakespeare's Hamlet. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Yeah, one of the difficult things was just how absent Laertes is from so much of the action of Hamlet. That was one of the trickiest things to figure out because I wanted there to be all these touchstones to the actual play. So I'm glad it worked for you guys Mm -hmm. because I've had an early reader or two be a bit surprised if they aren't familiar with Hamlet, just how Hamlet is there, but they're not together all the time or anything like that. Yeah. Well, uh, your novel does take Laertes' scenes in the play. And then it also fills in the blanks when he's not on stage. So like you've included stuff prior to King Hamlet's murder. Uh, You've uh, included what happens to him after he leaves Elsinore following the funeral and the wedding. And before he returns to Denmark after finding out about Polonius. How did you create this world away from Denmark for Laertes? I knew he was in Paris and I assumed he was university age. It's not super explicit that he's studying in Paris, but I figure Hamlet's studying in Germany, so he's probably studying in Paris, mm-hmm. whether or not he's, you know, behaving himself. Mm-hmm. And I knew that he couldn't be by himself. <laughs> right. <laughs> because that's, that's nothing. That's not a story. So I had to invent these other people for him to kind of coexist with that would also be foils for him. 
and I've always liked that dynamic with dark academia as well, that found family, you know, you're studying together in this bubble of your own space. And so I wanted to play with that a little bit. And that's how I came up with the two guys, at least, Julian and Henry. Josephine was a little bit just to add some variety, but I also wanted to explore the idea of the gender roles kind of switching and the way that Laertes perceives Ophelia because he can come off as pretty sexist in that first scene where he talks to Ophelia and he's saying well don't sleep with Hamlet and I'm just going to run off and do whatever I want in Paris and I wanted my Laertes to be super flawed but like a fundamentally good person who just didn't see certain things and so she was there partially to help him see his own life from a different angle. Mm -hmm. I like that she was in some ways a foil for Ophelia I suppose I would say so that Mm -hmm. When we get back to Denmark and Ophelia has, for lack of a better phrase, gone mad, he's able to see certain elements of the gender roles, especially in 1920s, in a 1920s setting. And he's able to have some like beautiful reflections about the world that his sister exists in, the world that he's able to navigate instead because of his interactions with Josephine. It prompts these really beautiful conversations between him and Ophelia. Yeah. We get this scene in Hamlet that hints that there's more to their sibling relationship, um, that they have a closeness and they talk about these kinds of things. But then, you know, we only see it once. And so your novel lets us explore that even more, the type of things that they could talk about. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Another scene that always really just broke my heart in the play is when Ophelia has gone mad, it's the flower scene. And Laertes, he's so he's so heartbroken, and his reaction, I I just that was another moment that for me I just felt like oh, this guy needs to have his story told because he's suffering at least as much as anybody else in this play, and right. he's always just swept aside because his lines aren't as memorable as so many of the other characters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, included in that is how your book explores like motivations for Laertes because he comes into the play. William Shakespeare's play and does some stuff that the actor just needs to figure out, like, why am I doing this? But reading the text, you don't really know. Why does he have poison? Why did he jump into Ophelia's grave? What's going on there? You know? And so I think that your your novel explored that very beautifully. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it was so fun to find those places in the text where I'm thinking, he just has poison, like, ready to go? Yeah. <laughs> What's that about? Or... One of the things that, that was the trickiest for me, besides jumping in the grave, that took a sec to figure out, was when the mob comes, I'm like, mm. why is everybody backing Laertes? This doesn't make any sense. Why mm-hmm. aren't they backing Hamlet or something? I mean, he's just kind of a random guy. So that was one of the hardest things, but it was such a fun puzzle too, to think, okay, so what had to have happened before this for this to make sense mm-hmm. and fill in some of those gaps where the play doesn't give you a whole lot. Yeah. I personally love Laertes' inner monologue. He feels really real and human in a way that the text doesn't really allow. How did you find his voice? Oh, that's a good question. It's the first time I've written in first person. And I think that helped a lot. Once I had a scene or two down and I had kind of figured out the balance between the older language and kind of taking my own voice and toggling it more toward that dark academia or once I found out what that balance was going to be, then it was pretty easy to write him, I think. I knew he was going to be kind of neurotic, and I knew that he would take action without thinking, but he was also somebody who had to have these rich inner thoughts. Yeah, and if he's going to be a friend of Hamlet's growing up, which I always had kind of assumed, 
Well, I mean, Hamlet is friends with some dumb people, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, bless them. Yeah. <laughs> I, I feel like there had to be something intelligent about Laertes and the way that he thought about things. And he makes these rich references, even as he's doing crazy stuff. You mentioned earlier that Laertes doesn't get to see the ghost. But um, what I noticed was that Laertes the book and Laertes the character tackles very similar themes as Hamlet the play and Hamlet the character. So, for example, there's a ghost, there's family, there's the supernatural, there's revenge and action and inaction. What was the process or how did you like go about writing these themes into the book? Because it was fun as a reader to see that Laertes and Hamlet are kind of foils in some way between the William Shakespeare play and your adaptation. What was that like choosing like what to focus on? I'm so glad that you noticed. <laughs> I wouldn't expect, and I don't even want everybody to, but for people who really know the play, I'm glad that you like that. I like how various adaptations can be. It's one of the most fun things about Shakespeare is just how creative you can be legitimately. But with any adaptation, I thought keeping the themes or at least certain themes intact was really important. I wanted some of his inner monologue to sound a bit like Hamlet's inner monologue. And there were a few ways that I picked out what to focus on. Part of it's just the way that I tend to read Hamlet, because we all have certain ways that we tend to go. Even if we learn new things, there's always that theme that you return to. You know the text inside and out at this point, I'm sure. What are some elements of Shakespeare's uh, Hamlet that you chose to change for the book and why? There were a few things that I did intentionally change. Hamlet's supposed to be 30. He's canonically 30. But everything in the play suggests that he's about 20. So I made him 20, even though I know what the play says. Mm -hmm. And I took some liberties with the characters. Like, I actually made the character of Hamlet almost more of an antagonist than I tend to see him when I just read the play. I played up that cockiness, which is there, but it's not his story, right? So mm -hmm. he's kind of an antagonistic mm -hmm. figure. Yeah, I actually really like that Hamlet is an antagonist in this story, because if you think about Laertes' experience... Hamlet is the cause of a lot of his grief. So it would make sense to build Hamlet, or at least those characteristics that you can spot in the text and amplify them and then fill in the pieces to aid in the story you're telling. Part of me feels like I could write a totally different book, also based on Hamlet, just focusing on different things, changing the prism around and telling it from a different character's point of view, but that's not in the works at the moment or anything. Mm -hmm. I did add a Mrs. Polonius. That's that right. A new, you did. A new thing. But as soon as I started thinking about that, it just made so much sense. And I love that too, because uh, Shakespeare more often than not has deceased mothers and doesn't explain them. Right. She's totally never mentioned, except for those weird references that Polonius makes once or twice. Like, oh, yes, you know, when I burned in passion in my youth and you're like, I don't <laughs> want to think about that, but that's the only <laughs> tiny hint you get that there was a Mrs. Polonius at one time. Yeah. So why does nobody even talk about her? Yeah. She gets no name. She gets no story. Right. We've talked about this, or we've mentioned it a couple times, but you also you teach Hamlet. Can you talk a little bit more about that and what that is like, what that looks like in your classroom? Yeah, gladly. When I get to it, I call it Hamlet season. And then all of a sudden, work doesn't feel like work. <laughs> but Hamlet season is such a blast because I don't assign at-home reading like I would normally with A Tale of Two Cities or something like that. Instead, we read the entire thing in class, in parts. And mm. 
we watch different versions of different scenes and it's so fun. And of course, we stop often just to make sure that they understand what's going on. And we talk about the themes and we talk about how would you set this up? If you were a stage director, you're the one in charge. Where is everybody? What's going on? And it really, by the end of the play, they tend to have really strong opinions about the different characters. They're surprised that Polonius dies. It's so it's so great because I, I hate spoilers. I just know that everybody listening to this podcast already knows stuff so I can mm-hmm. speak freely, but no spoilers. So we get to that and everybody's all surprised and they get to the point where they're so much better at reading Shakespeare and just hard text in general than they were at the beginning, or at least whatever their ability was has improved. And they're able to talk about adaptations like David Tennant's version versus, you know, Maxine Peake's version or whatever with some authority. They always have to back things up like, well, the play talks about this, so the lighting probably wouldn't be like this. And I'm just like, yes, mm-hmm. That's, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's the kind of ability that I want students to have coming out of Hamlet. Not only the really rich, big ideas and these characters that are so enduring, but the skills as well, kind of tricking them into being really good readers. Yeah, that's really neat because Elise and I time and time again say on this podcast that Shakespeare's work is not in a vacuum and it's for us to find out new ways to tell the story and tell the story for ourselves. So it sounds like you're planting that seed in your students when you get to Hamlet season, which is awesome. (laughs) Yeah, it's fun. They're not so sure at the beginning because reading Shakespeare when you're not used to it, it's like lifting weights. But by the time we get to the final scene, I hardly have to explain a single thing. They just act it out. And I don't explain in advance. I just tell them kind of where to stand Mm -hmm. and then just let them go. And they understand well enough to just do it. And they're 15. That's so cool. That is really cool. I love that. All right. Well, Carly, we have reached the end of our chat about Laertes. Do you have anything specifically you want to plug? I know the book, of course, but, you know, is there anything else that you want to say to our listeners? Yeah, there is one more thing. I do have a YouTube channel called English Nerd, and I talk about Hamlet scene by scene, but not just that. It's literature, it's writing, it's all things English nerd. And so if you're interested, there are over 300 videos on there. Nice. I love that. Platform for nerds. It didn't take a lot of thought to figure that one out. Carly, thank you so much for joining us today and for your lovely book, for sharing this with us. We really enjoyed it. And our listeners, if they want to pick up a copy, can pick up a hardback or a paperback or an ebook wherever they get their books. That is correct. Thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure. And to our listeners, thank you for listening to this episode. Our kind listeners, we can no other answer make. But thanks and thanks and ever thanks to our Patreon patron, Kiara. I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. This is Shakespeare Anyone. Thank you so much for listening to Shakespeare Anyone. Works referenced in this episode are available in the episode description. Our theme music is Never Ending Minute by Sounds Like Sander. If you would like to support us, it would help us out if you would hit the subscribe button like us, leave a comment, write a review, share us on social media, tell a friend about us, all the things. We'd appreciate it. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash Shakespeare Anyone. Patreon patrons get access to exclusive bonus content throughout the year. 
The link is also in the episode description. For more, you can visit our website, shakespeareanyone.com, follow us on Instagram at shakespeareanyonepod, or Twitter at shakespeareanyone. For Twitter, that's shakespeareany and the number one. Every other platform is spelled out like the name of the podcast. Now, because you listened all the way to the end of the credits, here's a completely random Shakespeare quote for you. From Hamlet, Act 1, Scene 5, Hamlet says, There are more things in heaven and earth ratio than are dreamt of in your philosophy.